Entrepreneurs Over 40, episode 14 with Alan Millam talking about his firm Questage and how they help entrepreneurs and other folk prepare for the third act of their life. For entrepreneurs who are coming to the third act of life, it's really looking in the mirror and having an honest assessment to say, how's my output and, and where am I putting my output with regard to all work or you know, starting to carve a new path for my family and to start passing it forward to the team or looking at what's right for the business so that you can have more freedom. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today spent most of his life in the coaching and leadership strategy field, working with hundreds of top-level executives and their teams. He has logged more than 15,000 hours coaching senior executives and their teams to greater performance. His career is distinguished by being one of only 650 recipients worldwide of the Master Certified Coach Designation Award awarded by the International Coach Federation. He's co-authored three books, Bold Moves, Jump to Outstanding Self-Managed Action, Who Are You When You Are Big? And now the question, How Curious Leaders Win? He co-founded Questage, which is a counseling firm with the primary focus of helping aging entrepreneurs maintain the drive that has propelled them throughout their lives. Entrepreneurs post-retirement don't have to stop being relevant or stop giving back to their society. He is resolute in his desire to keep these individuals going through through the third stage of their life. Without further ado, Alan Millam. Thank you. I'm glad to have this time with you. Same here. Now, Alan, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world? Absolutely. Actually, let's go back in time for a moment. You know, as I listen to your introduction, I'm reminded of a very sad situation that occurred when I was 12 years old. I was down at the creek in the Midwest of the United States with my brother and Scott and Anne-Marie and Beth and a conversation pursued about uh, careers and what we were to do when we got older. And my brother was very much passionate around sales. Scott was interested in mechanical engineering and mechanics with his hands. Beth being a teacher and Anne-Marie being a nurse. And I thought I was dead in the water because I didn't get the chip. I had no clue. I was just fascinated to think, "How, how do you know that? And they spoke with such conviction. And I really thought damaged goods. So Fast forward to my delight that in my 30s, I began to really find what some people are pleased to call your calling, right? I was always fascinated from a very early age around human potential and what allowed some people to to survive and others to thrive and what caused some people to plateau and some just to really climb the ladder. So that narrative around leadership from a very early age just never left me. And I began my career in the hospitality industry with Marriott International, actually before it was Marriott, the Residence Inn Division, back in the 80s. And there was a point uh, where I was a regional director of sales and marketing over fourth of the United States for that division. And there was just a bit of a wake-up call one morning that said there's something bigger. I listened to that and 
I've always been, as I said, fascinated around human potential. And so I went back and got a graduate degree in psychology, but I was the only one in grad school not going into the profession of psychology. For me, it was always about people, relationships, and organizations, and entrepreneurs, and again, thriving versus non. I've had the privilege over the last 25 years to be in that narrative with entrepreneurs and leaders in multinational companies. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I really began to be in conversation with leaders who had fulfilled their agreement of their careers. They were in their 60s. Uh, some of them had won the money game. They were beginning to look at this word that's really going to evaporate called retirement. <laughs> I think the word is more pro-retirement, quite frankly, for this current generation. After Marriott and when I was in grad school, I worked for one of the largest career management consulting firms. And one of the things that I was fascinated in that experience was having men in their late 50s and 60s coming to me, and you could not walk off the street to work with us, Greg. You had to be afforded this by the company. And most of the top performers I was working with just simply was because of acquisition, right? The other person got the nod. And when you removed that business card and that title <laughs> and the compensation that came with it, I was struck to the fact that so many times there was no there there, that the individual's identity was so tied up in the what they did versus the who they were. You know, there's an interesting dynamic that I don't think we should be proud about in America, but it certainly was very alive in my growing up. That was when you would go to a social event or a cocktail party, right? The very first question normally out of the gate is, what do you do? I was fascinated by that because I had the privilege of living abroad for a year in, in college. The energy around what you did was secondary to where you came from, your family of origin, you know, what mattered. And I think that we're so caught up with that for some people that haven't done their work that when they get to the end of their full-time careers, that can feel like a cliff. And there's a loss of relevancy. There's a loss of identity certainly a loss of purpose and passion. And so that's really where Questage was born a couple of years ago, really to help individuals who are hitting that stage of life, maybe you call it the third act of life, that still have decades of productivity, but really yearn, but don't know how to put it all together. And so, that was, so that's what Questage is about. We have a very laser program really to help people develop a compelling roadmap. So that's a bit of the story from there to here. Okay. Now, did you come from an entrepreneurial background at all, or did anyone in your families have their own business? That's such a great story. On my father's side, they were farmers in the Midwest. Sometimes I call that the hardest entrepreneurial act that exists back in, back in the day. He actually was an executive, worked for a company. When I had this calling with regard to going beyond corporate America and going entrepreneurial to help individuals and become an executive coach, I'll never forget the conversation I had with my mother at the time. She was very pleased that I was with a very large organization. I've been climbing up the ladder. I was 30 when I announced that I had an opportunity to go entrepreneurial. And she had, Greg, two words for me, get therapy. <laughs> Back then, we were still sort of teetering on, stay in the big organization, keep your head up, be proud, do good work, get the gold watch or whatever, and enjoy your 10, 20, 30 years, and then retire. As you probably well know, we're spending less than 40 months in a job these days. So you know, actually, the United States is going entrepreneurial, right? My wife had a 
phenomenal career within Marriott International for 33 years. I'm convinced that should our daughter have kids, they're going to, you spent how long in that one company? It's just in this last generation changing dramatically. So I was not prepared for entrepreneurism. And I can remember the day that literally I was having my fingers peeled off my desk in corporate America when I decided that I was going to leave and launch a professional coaching practice. As for many entrepreneurs, they say, you know, it was a humbling moment, but they've never looked back. For the last 25 years, I just can't imagine. This was meant for me. And I've had the privilege of working with a number of really amazing entrepreneurs that also left corporate America to listen to their calling and to go forth and to lead their work in that way. It seems like from early on, you were an Eagle Scout. You are obviously a high achiever. What got you focused on peak performance and exploring human potential at at such an early age? We're all wired differently. I was not your typical child. At the age of 12, I remember being fascinated around relationships and people. I asked my mother to tell me about her interpersonal relationship with my father. And she paused and (laughs) said, I don't know what you mean by that. And little boys, don't ask those kinds of questions. And with that, it was a bit shut down. But I, I think from my early on experiences, certainly in scouting, it's unfortunate that scouting has, I think the arc has tipped dramatically. But when I had the privilege to go into scouting, I was with a troop of 120 kids. We were incorporated. We traveled uh, the globe, nine countries and 48 states and had high adventure trips every summer for six weeks. So I think I was just always noticing the narrative of who are those super achievers? Who are the ones that that seemed to have the right mindset, to have the right kind of wiring to be able to wake up and go for it in the morning versus taking the back seat? I think what compounded that, Greg, was when I was with the career management consulting firm, we actually were sponsors of the U.S. Olympics when they were in Atlanta. I had the opportunity to work with a couple of Olympians who were actually coming back from going from the gold and sitting in front of me at the ripe age of 20 and 21 to determine their career. Now that they've gone for it, what now? What was so humbling about that experience is that without any training, every one of them had this ability to really have a mindset around performance, around noticing who had the microphone in their head. We all come sort of with this naysayer that can be sort of an inner critic and limiting beliefs and hold us back. And we have this other voice that says, sometimes go for it, right? What we refer to as the whisperer. I can understand why they were well-muscled in their sport, but I couldn't understand why they weren't freaking out having millions and millions of people watching them in a competitive America. And it just was a moment for me to say, gosh, if, if these kids can do it, what about adults in their 30s and 40s and 50s, right? And so that really shaped what was to be a performance model that I used really leveraging my thoughts and interests from childhood all the way forward, it helped me to define things like identifying one's optimal operating state, right? Just imagine, Greg, we lost your user manual and we had to recreate it for you around what allows you to be optimal, what allows you to be in the best shape possible. By focusing on that, we can then be able to move you to to a really high end of performance. Going back to the Olympians, What age were you roughly there? My 30s, my early 30s. Okay. So you were maybe a a few steps ahead of them. 
and you're yes. giving you're giving them advice. It sounds like it was an awesome opportunity to pick their brain and to learn from them, and they were learning from you as well. Correct. While I was in a consulting business, in retrospect, before I'd been trained in coaching, I was doing something very different than my colleagues around really leading with the power of the question, asking what and how questions around their motivations, their passions, their skills, the things that they really like to do, right, to help assemble a, a game plan for them versus a prescriptive roadmap of here's what you need to do, good luck. It was very humbling, to be honest with you. And that's actually been the case through my entire professional practice because of the fact that I've uh, really been really focused on top performing leaders who really aspire to grow to that next level, whether they're entrepreneurs or working in a big corporation. It's just such a privilege and it makes you very hopeful, right? Because there's so much negative news around us, but we have amazing leaders and, and part of the stake for Questage and working with us in the third act of life is that individual has to have a yearning to pay it forward. I really believe we don't have the option to hang up our leadership, right? We have a void right now. And the generation behind the boomers, the oldest is 53 right now, the Gen X, and it's a small generation. The millennials are behind that. So we need about another 10 years for the boomers to be able to be in that leadership narrative. We don't care what it is, whether it's a nonprofit, whether it's a charity, whether it's volunteer, whether it's consulting, that doesn't matter. But we can't afford that vacuum of just letting that wisdom and that knowledge over decades just evaporate. Of course, as you're seeing, today's quote-unquote 65-year-old is very different from their fathers or mothers, you know, what they were looking like at 60, 65. That's exciting for us because it's, it's allowing for more possibility, more vitality, and more, more leadership. Yeah, it seems like today's 65-year-old is a lot better shape and a lot more savvier about what they're going to be doing in the third part of life. That's right. We originally called this program High Impact Retirement, and boy, we got shot down. It's like retirement. I don't want that R word in front of me. So that's for when I'm in my 90s. I met a man who was 85 years old. Unfortunately, he didn't make it through COVID. I had the privilege of speaking to him in Kansas when I was traveling a number of years ago. And he was a very successful businessman. He worked, he had the sort of the pricing machines for one of the largest fast food companies in the world. And, and I said to him, I'm just, I'm so amazed at your energy, at your age. And I said, when are you thinking of slowing it down? He said, you know, it's funny. I was just telling my wife the other day that I think next year I'm going to be ready to bring it down to about 40 hours. Just slow it down a bit. <laughs> I just wow. thought, good for you. That, that was such a great moment to hear that enthusiasm. And when we're purposeful, right? When we're in passion, when we're waking up with excitement to do something, we now through positive psychology can see that we're actually literally living longer, right? The disposition around optimism and, and, and having purpose and productivity literally is allowing us to live longer than if we're unplugged, isolated, and not productive. Yeah, I was going to say, anecdotally, it just seems like that if somebody retires and they don't fill that void with whether it be volunteer work or right. starting another job or family or whatever have you, that they just kind of deteriorate. That's right. Like, and so when you look at a roadmap for the third act of life, it is about playing hard, but also being plugged into something that's productive for you, right? So we look at it through decades. If you're 60, 
Let's define the next 10 years. What does productivity look like for you, both in giving back and purpose where you can use the skills that you have from your entrepreneurial years or your career years in corporate America, but also then the lifestyle productivity, the travel, the family. So it's hitting both sides of the coin with really the intention that the best act of their life is the third act of their life. Mm -hmm. Now, how did your coaching journey begin overall? When I was in grad school, I had the opportunity to work for, formerly known as Drake B. Moore, and it's been absorbed, or been, there's mergers now. They had, I believe, 200 operations around the world, 200 offices, and I was in Northern California, and I was working in their San Francisco office. Well, that really was sort of the genesis for me, to be able to sit in a room with an executive. A lot of the offices around me had the fluorescent lights and a table or in a desk or whatever. And when you walked into my room, I had a lamp. I had a little, <laughs> little round table that we could just sit at. I never sat at the desk with them. I always sat with them. And I found myself just really being in what I would call a white room of possibility. I just got to ask questions about what their dreams were early on, what they thought they aspired to be, how their life story evolved through their childhood to their education to their early working years. And really listening for what the unique differentiators were for that, that individual and sort of pulling out what I call little brand pieces, little brand elements that made them unique. Years ago, there was a research done where they interviewed hundreds or thousands of HR professionals and they asked the question, if you had a, a client that can do the job, in other words, they had 100% of the skills and then you had another client that didn't necessarily have 100% of the skills, but they had the motivation, right? They seemed to be leaning in. And then the third candidate really fit with the culture, right? When, when, when people interview them, they had some of the skills or motivation, but that fit was so critical. They just could see them merging into the culture, bringing their energy into it. And when asked the question of A, B, or C, which one would you take? resoundingly, it was the how fit, right? You know, outside of special scientists and very technical training, the, the premise was, is we can train you with that attitude, but with your skills, we don't know how to, you know, get you to, you know, culturally align. That just has to sort of come with. I never forgot that, right? And so I, I, I was always mindful of listening for where their passion skills were, what excites them to do, Versus the, can I can do that, I can do that, I can do that. Well, if you go on that path, you're going to have a watered-down career. It's just not going to be exciting. But if we can really pull out the gems of what makes you unique and what you love to do, that's the award-winning package. And so by really uh, working that consistently, that really was the genesis of my uh, coaching business when I went entrepreneurial. And my first client individually was a former partner with Price Waters, and she she was a top performer. I met her through my career consulting. And as a top performer, who'd she hang out with but other top performers? Instead of thinking as coaching as remedial or, wow, what's wrong with you? She hung out with people that were like, hey, what's going on? Well, I've got this amazing performance coach I'm working with. What's that? Right. So that was actually uh, client number one. And uh, that began a word of mouth business for 20, 25 years. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that you were like one of the pioneers in, in, in business coaching. I think coaching really began in the 90s. I didn't get certified till 98 or 99. And so there were there were probably hundreds. But it was, you know, still fairly my, new. 
yeah, certainly compared to today, it was a very different uh, kind of thing. And I'm really excited. I'm a big spokesperson for the International Coach Federation. They're the governing association for coaching. And man, they have it right with the right standards, the right guidelines, the right ethics. It's incredibly professional. I'm very proud to be a part of it and the credentialing process. Speak of entrepreneurs, we we need lots of coaches still. So that's actually a very ripe vocation for people who feel that they'd like to investigate having their own entrepreneurial business, serving and helping and guiding others to their greatest fulfillment. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because there seems to be an awful lot of coaches out there, but they're unqualified or they're, they're all self-taught. You yeah, don't really you know what you're getting. I mean, the challenge with the industry, it is a challenge because it's unregulated. So technically, Anybody could go down to Kinko's or FedEx and produce a coaching business card and say, I'm in business. And I'm a big advocate. If you're in a place, I believe that there are many places in our life where we need to make it a team sport. You know, we're just hitting something where we're not meant to go it alone. And to me, that's where professional coaching comes in. If you're going to invest in that, why not go for the very best, at least ensure through the ICF, they've got an amazing referral database. You can just, you know, whittle it down by location, by topic, by function, by title, by you name it, to ensure that you're getting with individuals who've done the work. You know, uh, the saddest story is really people that call themselves coaches, but they're doing it because they want to sort of self-heal. <laughs> I say, do the self-work first before you sit in the coach chair with someone's life in front of you to be able to guide them for what they want. So I'm, I'm a real advocate for self-development, self-growth, to do the work so that you can be best in your game. Okay, so what would you advise somebody to, to do or to take if they wanted to kind of duplicate or emulate your career path? Great question. The first thing is do not quit your day job. So unless you really like a challenge, I, I co-founded co the International Coach Federation chapter in Phoenix 20 years ago, and, and I was such a large advocate for that because you need time to test it out. And you have to be very clear on what's the calling, and within the calling, what's the niche? Because to be all things to all people, that's going to be a hard road. If you Google executive coaching or life coaching, stand back, you, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits. I think the first thing is, is if this is truly a calling of yours, do the homework. Go to a chapter meeting, currently virtually, but soon to be hopefully in person. Talk with coaches and then investigate the different coaching schools that are available. Talk to people that have gone through those, the alumni. And, and notice what floats your boat. What are you excited about? What are you hearing that you want to dig deeper on? And with that front research, it's going to really help pave a very solid concrete roadmap for your foundation for you. My belief is if this is your calling, it's your calling, and you're going to be guided to that. Sadly, I have seen some of the most brilliant, skilled coaches. In other words, they really had the gift of being able to be a really great coach the challenge was is that they weren't comfortable selling themselves as a business, right? And I even had, Greg, I, ironically, I even had salespeople, right? That would, but they were selling something else, right? But when they turned the mirror in and had to put a price on themselves, they choked. So you have to be really, this is where the entrepreneurial spirit comes in. You have to have what I think is, is a level of readiness to be able to, to go it, but not to go it alone, go it with a team. 
So I'm a big fan of getting an advisory board around you, four, five, six folks that know, know you, care for you, or they have some kind of expertise or a network that can help you get out of the gate. Because it can be a very isolating for many, many coaches, particularly with the pandemic. So you do want to, particularly if you're extroverted, make it a team sport, bring in people around you so they can hold you for accountability, get a mastermind group, get a buddy. And certainly by aligning to one of the ICF, I think they've got over, they may have 200 schools now that they have accredited. Do the work to put and invest in that. I really believe it's important for any career, for any entrepreneur, there has to be a willing to self-invest to be able to get yourself game ready for the calling. Okay. I'll try and put some information in the show notes for the ICF as well. What are some of your key insights from your years of experience coaching? Great question. The first thought that comes to me is, is back to those that are okay surviving life, right? If you look at their scrapbook, nothing wrong with it. You can see that they grew up, they got educated, they went to university, got into work, married, you look at it, looks like a good life. And then you pick up another scrapbook with people that just seem to have this desire to thrive, right? Not just survive. And their scrapbook has the same kinds of chapters in it as the other one, except the color, the vitality, the aliveness, the richness, the scaling of it. Mm-hmm. You just feel it's different, right? And that's not a judgment. You know, I really believe we're all here to do what we're here to do. But I've been very privileged to be in a career to really be with the thrivers and to really watch the impact they can make. And it's a bit of a ripple effect, right, in their work, in their teams, in their communities, and certainly with their families. We need more of those personalities right now in our world, right? We've got serious challenges. It excites me to see the vitality and the courage that leaders have. I was facilitating a dynamics program globally this morning. Unfortunately, it was 4 a.m. Arizona time, but we had to cover all time zones. And and the good news is I'm a morning person. What was struck about that meeting was the transparency because they'd had old members on the team, new members on the team, but it was a leadership team. And what was really touching about the call was the willingness to tell the hard truth of what had worked, what hadn't, what behaviors weren't working. And this is a team that yearns to move to high performance, right? It yearns to be able to be best in class. And when I'm in those conversations, Greg, it's really motivating, right? Because sometimes media can sort of make us go to sleep that that the thriving's over and we have just to survive now. I think that's the greatest privilege I've had to be in this chair over the last 25 years is to be a part of the narrative of people who really want to make a difference in our world. It seems like there's been no greater time in history for the possibility or opportunity, but you could also say that there's been no greater time in history for the possibility or opportunity to really screw things up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hear you on that. That's a little bit out of my narrative. I've recently been interested in Ancestry.com and just tracking my own history. And and if we look back three or four generations, it was tough, (laughs) right? We have more complexity, but Man, I don't know if I could have showed up. As I said, we came from a farming family. I'm an Eagle Scout, but even what I imagined my great-great-grandfather's having to do to show up every day, that's rigor, and that's tough entrepreneurism. That's at its best as far as I'm concerned. 
the challenge I see today, Greg, is that a lot of us are falling asleep. We're numbing out. There's just so much negativity that our systems can't actually take it all in. And so we're sort of going to sleep. And my challenge to myself is not to do that. Entrepreneurs carry so much on their shoulders with regard to holding it together. And it's up and down the cycle. Certainly COVID took out a lot of entrepreneurs, right? I think we get tested. And, and sometimes we're tested to, to fall to our knees. And yet we are here. And this is not a dress rehearsal, as many have said in life. This is our time. So how do we get back up, right, and, and be a part of that change process and be able to move us forward? So what would you go back and do differently in your career if you could change things? Well, that's a big one. <laughs> Didn't see we, that one coming. <laughs> we can circle back to that if you want. No, I always trust my intuition, so I'm just going to give you what, what came in. You know, we're talking about thriving versus surviving. And a part of my narrative, as much as I've been intrigued with leadership and performance from very early on, I also had a lot of diversity in my childhood. And the biggest part of the diversity was when I was in third grade, apparently I wasn't reading at the level or whatever is supposed to be happening in third grade. And all of a sudden, Miss Cunningham, God love her, never married, probably 80 at the time she was my teacher. You can get the stick figure there. I can remember parent-teacher conferences, and I can remember back then there was a theory. I, when I was a baby, I crawled like you do in the, in the Army, in the war, right? You dragged your you know, elbows, knees, elbows, knees, not hand, knee, hand, knee. And there's a theory in the 60s that suggested that that there was a hand-eye coordination issue. So basically, the end result of this had me with my parents, with a psychologist who recommended that there was a Nazarene college with a superb reading program two hours away from our town next door to a military academy run by Catholic nuns. Now, we weren't Catholic, but it was their belief that I could step up, I could learn to read. You're talking about my interest early on around interpersonal relationships and psychology. Well, in the 60s, that really wasn't sort of cool for boys. So I think, I don't think they thought I was lazy. I just think they thought, wow, there's this guy's got some empathic skills or something going on that we need to sort of toughen up. So that's where I went for three years. And every Sunday night, I would come home uh, from the neighborhood and get into my uniform. After the first year, I certainly learned how to read. And by the third year, I said, look, I can really read. (laughs) Can I come back home? Unbeknownst to me at that time, basically my brain said, become the best little boy in the world so they can never ship you away again. Oh, wow. And so I think a part of my performance comes from that basis. And one of the most fascinating instruments that we use at Questage uh, that comes out of Cape Town, South Africa, is an actual questionnaire called the Integrative Enneagram that's tied to nine core motivations. This tool out of Cape Town, I've run it for over 500 leaders with only one person disagreeing with the results. So there are lots of Enneagram questions out there, but this one nails it. I am a strict perfectionist and one that right and wrong, take the high road, operate with integrity, right? But we also tend to be the toughest inner critics around performance. Your Enneagram type, historically said, comes to you around the ages of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age, and it never leaves you. 
So I share this story with you because that was the genesis of me becoming a one on the Enneagram, that strict perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit chicken or egg, I suppose, right? When you look at my career, because it wasn't until my 30s that I really realized that I had wired myself that way from that experience. And while I wouldn't wish that on anybody, it also profoundly shaped who I am today. And I've noticed that with almost all of my clients. You know, we, we are our story for most of us, unless we have to rewrite our story. And so while it was painful to experience that as a child, it's allowed me the skills and the gifts to have the privilege to do what I do joyfully every day for the last couple of decades. How did you isolate that incident? Was that something that you did you know, through therapy, or is that something that just talking with friends or relatives or your wife? That's a great question. I'm laughing inside thinking of my last co-author, my last book out of the question, How Curious Leaders Win. My co-author was Guy Parsons, who's an amazing, amazing lean practitioner in the lean processing, lean consulting space. And, okay. and lean consulting is all about asking questions, as is my profession. So he was a colleague and a former client. We came together with had this great idea. And as he got to know me more, he said, my goodness, you seem to have quite a team around you <laughs> just for you to do life. And, and I really thought about that. And it has, I wouldn't be where I am today, Greg, absolutely, if I had not made it a team sport. There are points where coaching came in perfectly. I love the designation between consulting, coaching, and counseling because counseling, there are very clear boundaries, right? If you're desiring to go somewhere and something in your past is blocking you, then it's time for therapy, right? Because we have to go back with a professional therapist, right? Psychologist, therapist, whatever, and rewire in order to allow you to springboard into the desired future. Whereas consulting, I've walked in your shoes. I have your resume. I know exactly. I have that expertise so I can partner with you and tell you what to do. And the beauty of coaching is not past focus. It's where you are right now. What do you aspire? Where do you want to go? What desired outcomes do you yearn to achieve? And, and we are in partnership to get you there. And so to answer your questions, in my 30s, uh, when I was in grad school, it took some heavy-duty therapy. And then I've had great coaches along the way. I just believe that there's this dance like the infinity sign between student and master. And, and you move back and forth. There are times, no matter who you are, where I think it's important to, to have that facilitate a process or to have that partnership to talk out loud to be able to move you forward to be your best version of yourself. You talked about the Enneagram a little bit. Can you go yes. into that a little bit more for our listeners and how that could be used to help an entrepreneur? With my background in psychology, I've always been fascinated by assessment, right? If we can have a tool to help peel back and understand who we are, how we make decisions, how we get energized, how we organize ourselves to the world, how we get motivated. You know, why not? There are wonderful personality assessments out there that I've used over the years. I've been a student of the Enneagram for 25 years. I've known it, but my challenge was there was never an accurate questionnaire. The, a lot of the assessments are open for error because they're not tight. And when I discovered the Integrative Enneagram out of Cape Town, South Africa, this Dirk Clote, the, the genius behind this questionnaire, just 
did something that's never been done before in the world. And to have this process to go through, and there's a way to, to know how honest someone is when they take it, how consistent they were, and we measure the time it took. And the validity of it, just as I said, I, it's striking to think that I've run this over 500 times with only one person disagreeing with us. I mean, that's just unheard of in the, in the world. So, and the reason I like the Enneagram so much is that it's not about personality, it's about motivation. And we all come with motivations. So if we can understand our specific motivation in this lens, it's nine different motivations. It's a very holistic tool. It's more than you just being one thing. It's your multiple things. It is a profound tool to use in entrepreneurial environments and with teams so that we can really understand who's who so that we can leverage our strengths, right? We can take those natural core motivations and the strengths that come with it to be able to really create high performance, whether it's in an entrepreneurial business or in a, in a team environment and in, in a corporation. And it is a powerful tool for relationships. In fact, the Integrative Enneagrams just spent years perfecting a new report for couples to really help people who are, are partnered and married to be able to really leverage that. You know, my wife and I have been together for 30 years. I love her dearly, my best friend. It's that, that one tool was so helpful for us because we, we can step at each other, right? And, and understand, oh, that's what you're doing. Got it, right? Without making wrong. And so, so it's, it's got great application, whether it's individual growth, whether it's for looking at leadership, whether it's looking for teams, and how we engage in conflict, right? How we make decisions. I'm a big advocate of that because it really opens eyes. It's a new tool, which is amazing. The irony is we can track its origins back 10,000 years. So this predates religions and philosophies. There's a lot written on that. It was actually an oral spoken tradition only up until about five decades or six decades ago. So I, I couldn't be a bigger advocate simply because of the brilliance of what it does in a very quick way and to help us in the narrative of our growth and development. I'll definitely have to check that out because as you alluded to, I, I can't count the number of times that, especially early on when we were just married, when my wife and I would have a disagreement and she said one thing or I said one thing, but we meant something That's completely right. different in our heads. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what's great is now you have this, now you're like, oh, wait a minute, that's how you're motivated. So when you said that, it just unlocks so much. And I'm wishing them great success with this new, still in beta, but he gifted it for my wife and I, and it's just stunning. You know, relationships are, are complicated, right? You have to invest in them, otherwise they stale. And this is an amazing tool to keep the vibrancy and the aliveness in those personal relationships. Now, you just hit on something, personal relationships as we're aging. Obviously, some of our friends are not going to be there either because they've either moved on or health issues or they've gone on. Do you offer, counseling may not be the right right word, but is it kind of, do you do anything with, with personal relationships? No and yes. We are not a counseling service. So right. we, we are an advisory and, and a professional coach service. So the Questage journey, though, the High Impact Transitions Program, which is a 90-day program for 
individuals to really see if they are a fit for it. We actually have a Are You Ready questionnaire on the website, questage.com, to really have them determine, is this right for me? There's no guesswork here. And we absolutely involve the partner and spouse in the journey. So because they're together, there has to be a we, not a me. We start with the individual because in most cases, there's one individual in the partnership that's coming off the full-time career. It can be both, but normally one still work. They're not normally simultaneous. So we take the lead with the individual that really is in that true approaching or just in that third act of life to really help them with the roadmap, but then we bring the we in, and ironically, we use the tool I just mentioned. They really get fantastic support because the journey for the third act has to be woven and shared between both partners, both interests, right? I remember a client who we were having an initial conversation, and, and he goes, well, I'm just so excited to get traveling. And she goes, well, we didn't talk about travel. Right? We can all have our dreams about what the third act looks like, but we don't really flush it out with a person that matters to us most. So we facilitate that conversation and we provide a roadmapping process so that both of them can be brought into it. So we weave, weave a, a, a shared game plan that has both thriving and exciting, right? But it is definitely not therapy. I'm a big proponent of couples therapy and, and that may be required, but that's outside of our, our wheelhouse. I'm smiling because I remember thinking back, my wife and I had a conversation and she mentioned, or she brought up the fact that if I passed away or something happened to me, she was going to sell the house and move to the beach. And I'm thinking, why do I have to die? <laughs> why can't I go <laughs> to the <true>. beach? <laughs> yeah, really. Okay. Well, watch what you eat in the house and yep. love her up and hug her up so that you don't have an accident. <laughs> and unfortunately, statistically, as you probably know, men go before women. So yeah. she's probably speaking a little bit to fact, but may you have a long, beautiful life together before that day reckons. Yeah, we hope to. And I think good, I've good. gotten her coming around to including me if we get to go to the beach. So <laughs> okay. we just have to figure out a way to make that happen. There. What are some of the hazards or pitfalls that you see for older entrepreneurs? Great question. I have such respect for the entrepreneurial world, right? Because of the intense rigor, the courage, and you got to be made tough. There's so many things that come at you. I can remember thinking, wow, I used to just get a paycheck every two weeks, no matter what. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you are responsible for delivering that to happen. So for serial entrepreneurs, ones that have been at it for a while, the biggest issue that we're seeing is learning how to unplug, right? Learning how to start dialing it back a little bit. How do I continue to do what I do, but also start creating a new pathway that's going to serve me as I get into my 70s and 80s? A lot of advisors talk about the 60s being the go-go years, the 70s being the slow years, slow down years, and the 80s being no-go. I think I'm going to challenge that because I think anyone in their 60s right now feel like they could be very active in their So it, maybe it's going to be 70s, 80s, 90s. Who knows where it's going to go? But for entrepreneurs who are coming to the third act of life, it's really looking in the mirror and having an honest assessment to say, how's my output and, and where am I putting my output with regard to all work or you know, starting to carve a new path for my family and to start passing it forward to the team or looking at what's right for the business so that you can have more freedom. Freedom's an interesting word because as we get into the third act of life, we begin for some people to talk about freedom from and freedom to. 
It's a beautiful inquiry to think about. So for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's not, a lot of them are still tight around heavy work ethic, and they love the passion, they love the speed of it. But there's an arc where we have to begin to sort of get a dimmer switch and start turning the dimmer down a little bit, not putting the light out, but just looking energetically at where, what do we need to be letting go of? What do we want to step into that's going to give us more freedom, both from where we've been and all the work we've done and freedom to do the things that that hopefully you're able to do with health from the rewards you've you've received from a great career. I know that you view asking questions as a tool. Ask the right question and you can figure your way out. If you saw the movie The Martian, you right. remember Mark Watney, right. yeah, ask the right questions and you get to go home. You get to go home. What questions should older entrepreneurs be asking themselves? Well, one of my teachers has been Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, and Richard is an amazing man, monastery teacher, passion around the Enneagram, and he's written a number of brilliant books. And one of my favorites is called Falling Upward. And in that book, he really speaks to the narrative of the first 50 years of life. Let's just use 50 as a marker, right? And in those first 50 years, you come into the world, you come in with nothing but your little body and little mind, can't speak. And then as you grow, you get into the family system, you get into education, you get into your jobs in the 20s, you're starting to figure out your career, you may meet somebody and and fall in love, you may have a family. And all that activity, Craig, is happening in the first 50 years. And what he offers so beautifully is to evoke a pause in that second half of life. And it may be when you're 60, right? It could be in your 70, but somewhere you just want to evoke that pause to say, and I've done well as a human doer. I've created a lot, but if I really look at the narrative of me as a human being and looking forward, what do I want more of as a human being? What do I want not, not to accomplish more, not to make more, but rather to be able to sit in silence and just ask the question, what's going to serve me in the second half of my life? When I was in uh, grad school, one of my psychology professors mentioned the word holistic. And she said that, you know, this word holistic, it's not a good word right now. This is in the early 90s. So don't use it. Don't put it on your business card. But believe me, in the coming decades, it's going to be a word of interest. With holistic, we're tying to the word mindfulness. And with mindfulness, we're tying to the word meditation. And with meditation, we're tying to daily practice where we're really being able to stop and to pause and to breathe and to reflect, much like the Eastern world has done for thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. What I'm really finding for third active life clients that come with us is either a yearning for that and not knowing how to do it, or they've started to do it, but want to do it more consistently. And what they're finding is that the answers for the third act of their life is coming from that stillness, right? It's not coming from the noise of running from networking and networking or business or deal to deal. You know, it's actually moving from outward to inward and trusting the intuition and letting that inform the journey ahead. And that's the number one uh, want and desire we're seeing with who we're attracting to Questage. And I'm really excited uh, to see that because I can't imagine a better way, a bit more powerful way, quality of life than to be able to invest in that process. Yeah. What are some of the questions that you, you're asking yourself or that you're coming up with about your own life? 
Boy, you're going right for the heart. Uh, so, in the integrative enneagram, in that assessment, they integrate three behavioral instincts that all human beings have. Some of us are social; we're meant to be around teams and family reunion, going along with the herd, recognition. Some of us are one-on-one. Some of us are very much about intimacy and one-on-one connection, and and that's how they want to do life. And the third, which is me, is self-preservation. And so those of us who have self-preservation in that top chair is an Enneagram One that flavors my one. And how it flavors it is around ensuring from an instinctual level that I have enough resource, I have enough money, I have enough wherewithal. The home environment means a lot to us self-pres people. I jokingly say nothing gives me greater joy than coming back from Costco with my 20 rolls of toilet paper, my Dijon mustard, the pantry's filled. Greg, life is great, right, when we have those resources there. So for me, one of the things that I'm looking at as a self-pres is being able to know enough is enough, right? Because for a lot of us, we've just been sort of working it and moving forward But when can you pause to say, well done, and enough is enough, you're good, you've got enough, you have enough resources to be able now to really sit in what I was sharing with you around freedom from and freedom to. And for me, that's the journey. I happen to be married to a social type. This isn't even on a radar, so it's really fun for us to come together because it's sort of like, oh, thank you for reminding me because I was just thinking we didn't have enough, right? And we do. So for me personally, we're in that narrative because we're tapping into the beginning, the first year of the third act of life, if you will. And we've never been here before as two sort of type A driven career people. It's really humbling to be the student in your own work and to live it authentically. Uh, And yet I feel so excited and privileged to be able to do so. You're very privileged to be able to share your work with your wife, too. Uh, Couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, the irony, if you go to questions.com, is I met her when, 30 years ago. I said, one day we'll be in platform together. And she just left a 33-year career at Marriott and has joined me. She said, why do I start my own consulting business when you've already got a platform? And I said, well, it took 30 years, but we're dead together now. <laughs> and not a lot of marriages can do that, Greg. Warning signal on that. But given yeah. our skill set and who we are, it's a, such a privilege that we can close this out together with this gift and, and service to the world. What's been the most uh, difficult part of starting Questage for you? You tricked me because I thought you were going to talk about starting my own business 25 years ago. So you're talking about Questage the last couple of years? Well, we can do either or. I wished when I launched my entrepreneurial business, I didn't have a blueprint. I didn't have a roadmap, right? I But I listened to my gut. And I also had a wife who... I don't know if I would have had the courage to leap without her, right? Because she had the day job. And if I could turn back time, I would have liked more self-believability. I mean, it worked. It worked. But if you look at it, it worked. I I just wished I had 10% more believability and just, yes, you can, what the impact of that could have been. I'm very mindful of not second-guessing and going back. But I, I think if I was talking to someone today who was... 30, 35, and they felt this that there was a calling within them to do something, it is a courageous act to follow that that intuitive hit and embrace it. Be smart about it. As I said, make it a team sport, investigate, research, don't quit your day job. There are lots of steps there. 
But I, I just wish I'd had more believability. Part of the challenge of the Enneagram One is that perfectionistic drive is always pushing you to the next level. It took me years to be able to learn how to savor that versus just to say, great, what's next? So I would just offer that for those that feel entrepreneurism in their bone, do your homework. There was a statistic, this is years old, where you know if you, you needed to incubate the idea for about five years for probability of success, because you know very well the numbers. And so it's really just seeding as you're listening to that intuition, keep seeding it, keep moving it forward, keep watering it over the course of, of a couple of years, may it come to fruition and, and allow you to thrive and have an amazing, amazing career. Okay. You've written two books with clients, three books total, but two of them with clients. How did that work out? How did that happen? So Who Are You When You're Big was a fascinating story. This was a client of mine, and she was a partner in KPMG. I say all this because it's in the book. Mm-hmm. Phenomenally successful. But she was a lone ranger in the fact that being a female in a male-dominated business. So she had learned of my leadership work and had reached out to me. And I want to say that was 2005-ish. It was just such a great experience to be privileged to watch her with her own calling, right? Because she was very good at what she did. She had a lot of motivation, a lot of vision. She also was very passionate about causes. And she had actually created um, a fundraiser within the firm to raise monies for, for a big association. And as she was talking months into our work, I just had this intuitive flash to ask her if she'd ever thought about doing what I do. And she's like, you're kidding. And I said, not at all. (laughs) Because I just noticed her framework around questions, the way she held her clients as creative and, you know, sort of saw possibilities and whatnot. She began to really look at that and say, wow, could I be an entrepreneur? Could I leave all this? Right. And there was a moment in that journey where she agreed that she thought, you know what, this it's time. This is mine. I'm, I'm going for it, right? And there was a moment, let's just say that was maybe a two or three month conversation of simmering and reflection and whatnot that she was doing. And there was a moment where she came to the call and her inner critic was in conversation with me. Right? And it's like, I can't do this. My dad thinks I'm crazy. You're going to do what? We got to the end of the call, and I just said, here's my inquiry for you for this week, if, you, if next week, if you'll take it on. Who are you when you're big? Take the business card away. Take the money away. I want you just to just go to the ocean, hang out there, look at the beach, and just be able to ask the question, who are you when you are big? And she came back with just this amazing statement of bigness, and it wasn't her business card. It wasn't her title, Right. It was about people and guiding people and helping them. So she did it and within a year was amazingly successful. And in her profound success, she created a boot camp for people in transition with over a thousand leaders going through this program. She asked that same question as a part of their homework in the program. Who are you when you're big? Take away your identity, your career identity, your work identity, your title, etc. And she came to me, she said, I've got all these amazing stories. I feel there's a book in me and I just feel compelled, but this is your work. And I said, no, Kimberly, it's your work. And she said, but I feel you asked the question. I said, well, I'll tell you what, if you create something bigger than just the book, we'll do it together. And she said, I'm in. So 
that was the genesis. And in that book, each chapter start has a big statement. Another human being just stepping up and having the courage to talk about who they really are when they play big, not by the identity of their work. And she went on with more and more boot camps, a phenomenal coach. To this day, she's still doing these big, big stories on video. She's still getting people to step up and be videotaped and boldly talk about this, which is just so transformational for people to hear and couldn't be prouder to be a part of that and uh, to have this work out in the world because we are more than our jobs at the end of the day. And when we take that last breath, it most likely won't include thoughts of that IT conference you went to or that business meeting where I crushed it or salesperson of the year. It's going to be about our big moments. It's going to be in our family, the things that's touched our hearts, the things that have really allowed us to really be proud of what we've really done in this lifetime that, that I think we're going to remember. So that's what that book is about. While we're talking about leadership, we're talking about executive presence, we're talking about healthy conflict management, the art of giving feedback, defining your personal brand, all of those things, something new is emerging in the last number of years that I think is important. I think it's important for entrepreneurs. It's important for third act of life. And the topic is self-care. Because bold leaders know how to take care of themselves. They know how to be healthy. They know that exercise is important. They know that sleep is important. They know that eating correctly is important. And they know that downtime is important. Back to the mindfulness and the meditation and not talking about going off to a Zen retreat. I'm talking about 10 minutes where you just sort of sit in silence. And for a number of years, I would put a slide up when I would do speeches around what are your priorities? Is it work, family, self? Is it family work self, or is it indeed self family work? And as you can imagine, column A was the winner. What we've discovered is that when we really take care of ourselves, the family wins beautifully because we have the energy for them to show up and we have the quality of time and we're making that commitment. And with that energy, there's a vibrancy that we just bring to our entrepreneurial work or to our corporate work or our, you know, our organizational work that allows us to win and it's in the right priority. And when we deplete ourselves, check out the billions in stress-related disorder. We're breaking down. We really are breaking down. I believe there's a different narrative. We're not meant to work this hard. We were not meant to take in this much stuff. We were not meant to multitask. We were not meant to process all the stuff that we've got coming at it through the monitor and the television. So the real challenge is how am I doing with my self-care? And do you give yourself permission and right authority, R-I-G-H-T, to actually go there. Because for a lot of people, they think it's more of a luxury until the heart attack happens or, or the cancer comes in. Unfortunately, I have had more than a dozen of those stories in my lifetime to go, wow, they couldn't have worked any harder. And their body finally said, we're done. And that was their wake-up call to readjust the game. So, so final piece. So if I understand you correctly, it's basically to put on your own oxygen mask first. Correct. So you'll have the energy to help your family. That's correct. That is 100%. You just said it. And too many are riding on fumes, getting everyone else's mask on the plane, hoping they will have enough oxygen to get back. And that's a lethal game. Oh, I don't even think it's that. They're probably, uh, you don't need oxygen. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Get all the oxygen you want when you're dead. That's right. Yeah. Toughen up. Yeah. All right. Very good. Very good.
What's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? At the end of the day, with all we can accomplish, I think it comes to the power of looking in your mirror. Are you good with what you see? Are you at peace with what you see? Are you aligned with what you see? And are you living the life that the person in the mirror is wanting you to have? And if there are question marks around that, spend more time at the mirror. Okay. Alan, what's the best way for people to check you out and get in touch with you? Best way, everything is loaded right to Questage, Q-U-E-S-T-A-G-E. It's a made-up word, Quest as in Questage, Stage, Age, Questage.com. Okay. And that's a wrap. Thank you, Alan, for being my guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Thank you, Greg. It was great talking to Alan and learning more about his pursuit of achievement, as well as learning about the third act of life. I was struck by how candid he was in sharing some of his life stories. One in particular that stood out to me was when he was sent away to school to improve his reading when he was 12. In a follow-up exchange, he quoted Friedrich Nietzsche, stating, What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He pointed out that in our culture, we tend to define ourselves by what we do, whereas in other cultures, you may be defined more by your family and other important factors. He is dialed in now with what he is doing in his career, but it wasn't always that way for him. While his siblings knew almost instinctively what they wanted to pursue career-wise, he didn't know it at an early age. It wasn't until he was 30 that he decided to go out on his own and pursue executive coaching. He also shared that working with young Olympians helped him to understand better the mindset around performance. In his words, we all come sort of with this naysayer that can be sort of an inner critic and limiting beliefs that hold us back. We have this other voice, though, that says sometimes, go for it, right? What he refers to as the whisperer. Alan points out that we have a gap in leadership right now, and that as a society, we need for the boomers generation to continue to lead and mentor the generations coming after it. The challenge he sees today is that a lot of us are falling asleep. We're numbing out. There's just so much negativity that our systems can't take, can't take it all in. So we're sort of going to sleep. One tool that Alan really likes both for personal assessment, as well as understanding your partner is the interactive Enneagram developed by Dirk Cloty. It's a profound tool to use in entrepreneurial environments and with teams so that we can really understand who's who and so that we can leverage our strength. Another important tool for the third act of our lives is self-care because bold leaders know how to take care of themselves. They know how to be healthy. They know that exercise is important. They know that sleep is important. They know that eating correctly is important and they know that downtime is important both to the mindfulness and meditation. When we really take care of ourselves, our family wins because we have the energy for them to show up and we have the quality of time when we're making that commitment. When we deplete ourselves, we really are breaking down. We should always be asking, how am I doing with my self-care? Alan has also found that we're, when we're purposeful, when we're impassioned, when we're waking up with excitement to do something, we now, through positive psychology, can see that we're actually literally living longer. Optimism, having purpose and productivity, literally is allowing us to live longer than if we were unplugged, isolated, and unproductive. So why not make the third act of our lives the best act of our life? 
Alan's a real advocate for self-development, self-growth to do the work so that you can be the best in your game. Alan's number one piece of advice for the entrepreneur over 40 listeners and myself was to ask yourself as you look in the mirror, are you good with what you see? Are you at peace with what you see? Are you aligned with what you see? And are you living the life that the person in the mirror is wanting you to have? If there are question marks around that, you can spend some more time with them. You can check Alan out at questage.com to learn more both about himself and also how Questage might help benefit you in the third act of your life. Now, next week, we'll have on John Moyer talking about how you can benefit from hypnosis in the first part of a two-part series. Be sure to hit subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss it or any of the other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.